Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4? If you're new to the Bible and you, and you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, the large numbers are the chapter headings and the small numbers are the verse numbers. And this morning we will be looking at 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Follow along as I read these verses, for these words carry the same weight as if Jesus Himself was here speaking them to us this morning. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look into Your Word now, that You would guide us, that You would help us to see what Peter is communicating to his audience and what You seek to communicate to us today through Your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Final instructions. We have all encountered final instructions. If you are a parent, maybe you... you have gone out on a date and either left your children at home alone or have left them at home with a babysitter. And you have given them final instructions. If you need anything, call me. Don't get into something. Make sure you obey. Make sure you put everything away. Make sure you put the dishes in the sink. Make sure you do something. Stay out of certain things. Don't leave the house. If someone comes and knocks on the door, don't answer the door. And there there are a bunch of these final instructions. What's the intent of those final instructions? Well, those final instructions are urgent, they are relevant, and it's important that the listeners who are receiving those instructions heed those instructions. Was Peter concludes as he starts as he starts wrapping up this letter to these churches, he has already several times talked about suffering. And so now as he concludes this letter, it is as if Peter is giving us final instructions. This is Peter's final word on suffering. 
Peter's final word on suffering. And what we see in our text this morning are his final instructions to his audience concerning suffering. He gives them two final commands that will serve as our two points to consider this morning. Before we consider those, here is the central idea that I think Peter is communicating in our text this morning, and it is this. In the face of suffering, Christians can rejoice and entrust their souls to God, their faithful Creator. In the face of suffering, Christians can rejoice and entrust their souls to God, their faithful Creator. That's the main idea that Peter is going to drive across. And he'll do that first through helping us to rejoice in expected suffering. That's point number one. Rejoice in expected suffering. We see this in verses 12 through 16. And if you look at the beginning of verse 12, you'll see the word beloved. Peter here is starting a new section of his letter with this term beloved. If we were to turn back and look to uh, 1 Peter 2.11, we would see the same term beloved. And so what he's using is he's using that term beloved or dear brothers and sisters to signal I'm almost finished. Here are the final instructions. And this, this particular passage deals with final instructions concerning suffering. And next, week, or next month, we will consider final instructions for how we interact with each other as a church body. But rejoice in expected sufferings. He starts with beloved. And then he says, do not think it strange. Or we could understand it as, do not be surprised concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Have you ever been surprised? Think back through your life, and and there are numbers of surprises that have impacted you in your life. We love good surprises. We love coming home and something that we anticipated having to do already being done for us. We, we are surprised when we, we tell our kids to do something perhaps and you walk away and you come back and it's done. You're surprised when they're calling for a bad snowstorm and you wake up and there's sunshine streaming through your window the next morning. And you look out and there's green grass and there's blue sky and no snow. We love good surprises, but we don't really care for unpleasant surprises. Think about it, though. Life is filled with surprises. There's much in life that tends to surprise us. But as Peter is writing this letter, of all of the things that could be surprising the believers that he is writing to in these churches, suffering for Christ should not be on that list of surprises. And so he writes to them, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you. We ought not to see suffering for Christ as a, I didn't see that coming type of scenario. As humans, we live under the curse and we dream of lives that are free of difficulty. The effects of the curse are felt in sore joints. They're felt in sickness and anxiety and in wickedness in the world. 
And we see the effects of the fall in suffering unjustly for Christ's sake. So in verse 12, Peter warns his audience not to count suffering for Christ as a surprise when it happens. Don't be surprised, but instead rejoice so that when Christ returns, you may have eternal gladness and joy. So, one of the interesting things about this not thinking it's strange in verse 12 is if you recall back up earlier in chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 4, there was another group of people that thought something to be strange. Those unbelievers who the, the believers in these churches were no longer running with, they counted it strange that they were not running with them any longer. They were surprised. How come you're not going to do this with us anymore? Christians can think it's strange when they have to face fiery trials. And here Peter is exhorting us, he's exhorting his original audience not to be surprised. As Peter winds down this letter, as he concludes chapter 4 and and finishes chapter 5, there's a parallel that he's creating between what he is saying in chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, and something that he has already said earlier in the letter. So if you would, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, listen to these words in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Turning back to our text in 1 Peter 4, here are some of the the correlations and the parallels that that the readers, that the listeners of Peter's letter would have recalled hearing just a few minutes previous as this letter is re- as this letter was read and given to them. In 1 Peter 1 6, Peter tells them to greatly, they are greatly rejoicing in something. And in verse 13, you will notice that they are to rejoice to the extent that they partake of Christ's sufferings. In 1 Peter 1, verse 6, Peter writes that they have been grieved by various trials. And in 1 Peter 4, 12, he talks of the fiery trial that is to try you. In 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Peter writes, Though now you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And in 1 Peter 4, 13, Peter writes, When His glory is revealed, in other words, when they receive the end of their faith, the salvation of their souls, they will be glad with exceeding joy. What's the purpose of this? Well, in chapter 1, the genuineness of their faith is tested. And we look in our text in 1 Peter 4, and it is concerning the fiery trial which is to try you or to test you. 
What is the nature of this fiery trial that is to try you? I mean, are we talking about another Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego situation here? The fiery trial doesn't necessarily speak to the physical nature of the trial, but the purpose of the trial. They are fiery trials for the sake of refining or testing or purifying believers. And we come to verse 13, and and Peter tells us to not be surprised, but to rejoice. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. In what way do we partake in Christ's sufferings? Is is there some remnant of Christ's sufferings that we have to partake in? Uh, what What is Paul referencing, or what is Peter referencing when he writes, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings? This speaks of the type of suffering that believers are enduring. In other words, they are participating in the same kind or the same flavor or the same sort of suffering that Christ endured. He suffered unjustly, and Peter is calling his believers to suffer if it means unjust suffering for Christ's sake. Christ suffered when He had done nothing wrong, and in a similar way, we are to suffer having done nothing wrong. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That, and, and that this, is, this is very important for us to notice, that when His glory is revealed. So this, this is a future, down-the-road reality that is not yet true for Peter's audience. It is not yet true for you and I. We rejoice now so that when His glory is revealed, when Jesus comes back, when He returns, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So we look then to verses 14 to 16 and we see some additional instruction. How should we rejoice so that when Christ is revealed, there is gladness and joy? What does that look like for me to not be surprised, but to rejoice in trials right now? And we see these two if statements that are in verse 14 and in verse 16. Verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ. So if you are if you are put to the test on, the, on account of Christ because you are a Christian, blessed are you. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, the unbeliever's part, He is blasphemed. They are blaspheming Him. They are taking God lightly. They are not giving Him the glory that He deserves. But on your part, He is glorified. Then there's a contrast But, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, and in those those days Christian is not a, a positive term that you want to be labeled, Christian is a term of derision. Oh, he's a Christian. If you're going to suffer, if they're going to to label you as that and it's true of you, 
Don't be ashamed to suffer for being a Christian. But let him glorify God in this matter. In both 14 and 16, there is glory that is to be given to God because of the suffering that we are going through. So in verse 14, if we are reproached for Christ, we are blessed. This is intended to encourage us as believers. Because even though the world might be against us, and it was against Peter's audience... They're blessed by God if they are reproached for being a Christian. Is there anybody else that you would rather be blessed or receive favor from than from God, the eternal judge and creator of the universe? So if you're going to take shots for being a Christian, it's worth it because you're blessed by God. The idea that suffering is a blessing in disguise because it builds character, whether that's true or not, is probably not Peter's thought here. Instead, he does not suggest that suffering for the name of Christ is beneficial to the believer in any way other than as evidence of genuine faith. Again, going back to the parallel in chapter 1, that the genuineness of your faith will be tested and that you will be found. The blessing comes not because of an opportunity for self-improvement, but because of the presence of God. When you go through trials, it's not that you gain something personally as much as it is confirmation that you are Christ's. You're partaking in the same flavor of suffering as Christ did. Well, we come to the end of verse 14 and we see, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is is one of the ways that we are blessed. We are blessed for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is a reference to Isaiah 11.2 where just as the Spirit is prophesied to rest upon Christ, so those who partake in Christ's suffering can be said to have that true of them. This is pointing to the future joy and gladness of Christ's return. That just as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of glory and of God, was promised to rest upon Jesus, if you partake in suffering for Christ, you are blessed because you have that same promise of future glory that Christ secured through His death, burial, and resurrection. But in verse 15, there is this, there's this caution, but let none of you suffer as, uh, suffer for four different things. Peter cautions us to be careful to live in such a way that we don't suffer for just cause. We would, we would all agree, and Peter's audience would all agree, that murderers and thieves deserve to suffer. That they have earned that suffering. Even someone who is an evildoer or a criminal, yeah, they deserve suffering. They deserve punishment for what they have done. The last term, though, is particularly tricky. This, uh, the way the New King James translate it, translates it as a busybody and other people's matters. The Greek word here is 
not used often. It's nowhere else used in the New Testament, and it's very seldomly used in other Greek literature. And so we have a, there, there's a difficulty in trying to pinpoint exactly what the word means. It could, could be referring to a busybody in other people's matters, or it could also have the idea of someone who is an embezzler. This last term more than likely has local significance to Peter's audience. This is something that that could be an acceptable thing in their culture. And here Peter is calling out the fact that, yes, it might be acceptable, but if you were caught, you would have just cause to suffer for this. Even something that would be accepted as a common evil justifies suffering. Maybe an analogous uh, term for us would be people who speed on the highway. Speeding, at least if you hop on 422, speeding is something that if you don't do, you will get swept away. And it can be acceptable for us to, to drive, but if we see the red and blue flashing lights come up behind us and the officer pulls us over, does he not have just cause to give us a ticket? That's not something that we're going to say, oh yeah, you deserve to go to jail for, but the officer is warranted in pulling us over. And what Peter's communicating here is even in a socially justified sense where you might say, I can do this, nobody cares, you'd still have cause for suffering. So what Peter is saying here is, let none of you suffer for just cause, even if it's for socially accepted evils. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, so don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, even somebody engaging as a busybody or as an embezzler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. When you suffer as a Christian, don't shy away from that, but use it as an opportunity. But let him glorify God in this matter. Verse 16 is rather ironic when you consider who wrote that verse. And this is the same guy who denied Christ three times. Who, when there was opportunity to suffer as a Christian, he was ashamed. Three times. But this is also the same guy who did not shy away from sharing the gospel after Pentecost. And he and his group of brothers walked out of the temple rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel's sake. So Peter's writing these words from first-hand experience. He's experienced suffering for being a Christian. He's felt the shame of suffering as a Christian and being ashamed. And he encourages this church, these churches, to suffer as Christians, but to not be ashamed and use that suffering as an opportunity to glorify God. So we see in verses 12 through 16 rejoice in expected suffering. Peter wants us to not be surprised, but to rejoice because there is an opportunity when Christ returns for us to have eternal gladness and joy. Forever. Secondly, entrust your soul to God. 
Rejoice in expected suffering. Secondly, entrust your soul to God. We see this in verses 17 to 19. Peter writes, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? The four that's at the beginning of verse 17 refers back to the reality that Christians will suffer. Verse 12, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Verse 16, when you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Glorify God in this, in this matter. So, suffering is coming. And as a matter of fact, it's coming and time has come. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God? This is a clear reference to the church. We could look back to chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, and we would find that God took those who were estranged from Him and gathered them together. He made them living stones. They were built up into a house, a spiritual house. They became the people of God. Even more than this, this is a reference back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's people, God's people dwelled in His house, the temple. They came to worship Him at the temple. Why does judgment begin at the house of God? I mean, isn't that the whole point of being saved so you don't get judgment? So why in the world would judgment start at the house of God? Why wouldn't He start with everybody else who deserves it and then work His way down to the house of God last? Why does judgment begin at the house of God? And what's the nature of this judgment? I mean, this is not temporal judgment. What Peter has in mind here is the eschatological eschatological judgment that's coming at the end. The judgment at the end of the world when everybody will stand before God and give an account for what they've done. Why is that beginning at the house of God? The judgment Peter is speaking of is the judgment that will separate those who are truly saved from everyone else. He would have heard Jesus talk about the fact that the sheep will be separated from the goats. That there are wheat and tares that are mixed together and when the harvest is ripened, then the harvester will separate the wheat and the tares. The fiery trials that will refine and test will also serve to filter out those who will not persevere to the end. So the judgment that's beginning at the house of God is a refining judgment. It's a purifying judgment. It is, it is a judgment that is designed to help identify the people of God and encourage the people of God to push through knowing that there is eternal joy and gladness on the other side of it. Peter's logic is this. If judgment begins with the house of God those who are partakers with Christ will be scarcely saved. And that's what he says in verse 18. So, if the partakers with Christ are scarcely saved, what is the end of those who reject God? 
If judgment is severe for those who are Christians and they're, they're scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Those who do not obey the Gospel in verse 17. These people who have rejected the truth. So, as we come to verse 18 then, and we see this quotation from Proverbs, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? We have to ask ourselves, what does Peter mean when he says the righteous one is scarcely saved? Because when we read that as 21st century Americans, I don't know about you, the first thing that pops into my mind is supply chain shortages. I go into the grocery store and the shelves are scarcely stocked. There's two things of toilet paper left and a whole empty shelf's worth of where toilet paper should be. And I think scarce in terms of like barely having enough. Is that what Peter means here when he says if the righteous one is scarcely saved? Or is Peter saying that we are saved by the skin of our teeth? That we squeak into heaven just because there's just enough? No. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter is not saying that the righteous are scarcely saved as if they were almost consigned to destruction and were just pulled from the flames seconds away from their destruction. What he meant is that the righteous are saved with difficulty. That's another way that we could understand the word scarcely there. Scarcely meaning with difficulty. So, the grocery store shelves are, are scarcely stocked in, in that the grocery store is having difficulty getting items to put on the shelf. doesn't speak to the sufficiency or the completeness or the thoroughness of our salvation as much as it is speaking to the difficulty of it. The difficulty envisioned that Peter is is getting across to his readers is the suffering believers must endure in order to be saved. Because God saves His people by refining and purifying them through suffering. They're going through fiery, difficult trials. The process is not easy. So if the godly are saved through the purification of suffering, then the judgment of the ungodly and the sinner must be horrific indeed. Christianity is not a cakewalk. And Peter would remember the words of Jesus when he would say, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And his exhortation to the disciples to persevere and be on that narrow road. So the righteous one is saved with difficulty. Suffering for Christ is is not easy. It's not something that we just hop over and say, ah, that was a piece of cake. I would love to do that again. Can I hop over a low throw? No, there is a challenge. It's worth considering verse 19 
and its connection to what Christ did on our behalf. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Verse 19 is going to set off a connection in Peter's audience because that word commit is a word they heard a couple chapters earlier. Back in 1 Peter 2, in the section that Stefan read for us this morning, what did Christ do when He suffered for us? He committed Himself to God. He entrusted Himself to God. Christ suffered for us. He suffered unjustly. He is the one who went through the most difficulty. He suffered for us once. The just for the unjust. Why? As Peter has just written back in chapter 3, so that He might bring us to God. Christ went to the cross in the most difficult way possible. He endured the most pain possible so that He could save us and so that He could bring us to God. And if we're going to partake in Christ's sufferings, it's going to be difficult. But there's a connection to what Christ did on our behalf. Even, even Jesus' own words in Luke 23.46 echo what Peter is writing here. Jesus said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Friend, have you trusted in what Christ accomplished for you on the cross? He suffered for you. He died on the cross so that He could pay for your sins. So that way, you don't have to face the horrific and and horrible destruction that is awaiting you at the end of your life. Have you come to Christ giving Him your sin and asking for His righteousness to save you? For those who trust in Christ, verse 19 is the foundation for why we can suffer and rejoice. We can can not be surprised and we can rejoice because of verse 19. Verse 19 is the foundation for joyful suffering. Why? Because there is stability that the believer has in God. And it's interesting the term that that Peter uses to describe God? We commit our souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Why Creator, not Redeemer? Or Savior? Creator speaks to the sovereignty that God has over all all of life, not just salvation. God created you. Therefore, God will maintain you and He will help you make it from beginning to end because He is the One through whom you even live and move and have your being. He is not just a Creator though. He is a faithful Creator. 
He is not someone who spun the clock up and set it on the shelf and stepped back and is just waiting for it all to blow up. No, He is intricately and intentionally involved in our everyday affairs. And He is faithful. He is faithfully and sovereignly working in our lives. Working the trials and the sufferings that we are enduring. Why? So that we will have eternal gladness and joy when He returns. But there's also some admonition for us. Because notice that Peter hints again at the good behavior that believers are to demonstrate in their life. He, he almost tacks this in in verse 19 in a way that you would almost skip over as you're reading it. But notice, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good. Going back to the idea that you're not to suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a common criminal. You're to suffer for being a Christian. And you'll do that by doing good. The way believers will reveal that they are trusting in God is by continuing to do good. It's easy to do good when you're rewarded for it. It's hard to do good when it becomes difficult and when you get persecuted and when you get reproached and when you get ostracized and when you catch flack and when there's investigations and when there's censuring and when there's all these other things. And our temptation would be to, okay, I'll just be a little bit like less overt. I'll stop doing what is good. And here Peter tells us, if we're going to suffer according to the will of God, we can commit our souls to Him. And the evidence that we are entrusting our souls to God and that we are are trusting in Him is that we will commit our souls to Him in doing good. Those who suffer according to God's will are those who share in Christ's sufferings They are the ones who are insulted in Christ's name in verse 14. They are the ones who suffer as Christians rather than for doing something evil. So if you suffer according to the will of God, you're doing, you are being persecuted and you are suffering for unjust causes because you're doing what is good. You're you're not doing any of the reprehensible things that all of society says, uh, yeah, you should definitely get some jail time for that. One commentator notes this about verse 19. We seem to assume that God knows what He is doing when we are happy and well. But trouble and difficult times raise hard questions about our relationship with God and about His intent and character. And it is harder to entrust our lives to God when we are suffering, and especially when that suffering is unjust and is the consequence of living obediently for Him. You're telling me to trust you and I'm the one that's taking all the heat and the flack for it because I'm doing what you told me to do and I'm supposed to trust you that everything will work out in the end even though I'm in the middle of suffering right now? And Peter encourages his readers that yes, that is reality. So we are to rejoice in expected suffering. We are to entrust our souls to God. So what does that mean for us? In light of this passage, what 
What should we expect? What expectations are we to walk away from this passage with? How does this passage alter our mindset and our thought processes as we live in this day? Well, in light of this passage, should it be surprising to us that our world is growing more hostile to the message of the Gospel and its demands? How many of us, when we look at what's going on in our world, we are surprised? We are surprised that that churches are not allowed to faithfully proclaim what God has taught? What? We're surprised when we stand up for what is right and we get pushback from our superiors at work. We're surprised. Peter helps our expectations and our mindsets when he tells us to not be surprised when that happens. But instead rejoice. Question, brother and sister in Christ, what ballast do you have in your boat to carry you through suffering for Christ in this life? What is it that will anchor your boat when the storms of suffering assault your ship? Peter, in these verses, is encouraging us to dig deeply into what we know about God and what He has done through Christ to anchor us when we go through trials. We are to entrust our souls to Him. Well, who is the Him? He's our Creator. He's a faithful Creator. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's our Victor. Do you have that ballast in your boat? for when those tough times come? Do you have those assurances of who God is that serve to compel you to entrust your soul to Him as to a faithful Savior? How should this text change our mindset for when persecution comes in our life? I feel like oftentimes we have a mindset of persecution and suffering happen to those people. Like, if you live in a country in the eastern part of the world, persecution happens to you. If you live in the Middle East, persecution happens to you. But brothers and sisters, we are assured that the question of suffering is not if we suffer, but when we suffer. How should this text change our mindset for when persecution comes? Admittedly, we know nothing of the suffering these believers that Peter wrote to were facing. They're facing social pressure. They're facing localized persecution that we have no handle for here in American culture. We have it relatively easy. Still, how can this passage help us with the challenges that we face in our day? How can, how can this text help us Monday through Friday and on Saturday? There's going to be hostility towards sharing our faith with others. People are not going to roll out the welcome mat and say, oh, this is the news I've been wanting to hear. You may, ex- you may have experienced hostility towards sharing your faith with others. You may have experienced pressure to wear a certain button or certain colors during certain months of the year or certain concessions or to say certain things or display certain things. Young people, you experience pressure to not stand for what is right and to conform to the culture. Yeah, you really believe that Bible stuff? Get out of here. That's a joke. 
We feel social pressure from neighbors or colleagues or even family. You really don't believe that about the Bible, do you? How does this passage address those challenges? I think Peter's words ought to serve as an encouragement to us and as a warning to us. On the one hand, these verses remind us that there is eternal joy awaiting us. So brother and sister, persevere and rejoice in the trials that you currently experience and will experience. Peter is encouraging you. But on the other hand, these verses issue a warning to all of us. These verses remind us of the terror that will be reality for those who are not in Christ. So, brother and sister in Christ, we must pay close attention to our lives and follow Peter's admonition to continue in the faith through suffering. It is worth going through hardship in this life so that we may obtain eternal life in the next. We are to rejoice. We are to entrust our souls to our faithful Creator. So brother and sister in Christ, may God give us grace to suffer according to His will and to entrust our souls to Him with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this text. Even though it is difficult and perhaps hard for us to apply to situations that we may be encountering or facing, Father, I pray that this would serve as help to us for future suffering and persecution. May we rejoice in what You have done in Christ Jesus. May we be willing to suffer and to not be surprised, but to entrust our souls to You. For You are a faithful Creator. We pray this in Your name. Amen.